Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Hey guys, as you've probably heard over the last few weeks, we are airing this other series here in our feed. It's called On Our Watch, and it's from NPR and KQED. And it's all about what happens when police do something wrong. A couple years ago, this law was passed in California that allowed reporters to get a bunch of information about how police investigate each other after an officer is accused of doing something wrong. So today is the final episode in the series, and this one is about a case you might have heard of. It's the killing of Oscar Grant by police in 2009. It happened at the Fruitvale BART station in Oakland, California. It was basically the first cell phone video of a police shooting to go viral. The reporters on this series fought the police department in court and eventually got a lot of information including footage about the internal investigation that police did after that shooting. Here's the episode. This podcast deals with policing and people affected by it. It contains explicit content and descriptions of violence. And Suki's on the line. We got Suki. Suki, you want to say hi? Hi, Wanda. Hello. How are you? I'm okay. Recently, we met up with the family of Oscar Grant. We really appreciate it. No problem. I was on the phone while my co-reporter, Sandia Dirks, who you've heard on the podcast before, sat down with Oscar's mother, Wanda Johnson, on a hot afternoon. What I'm going to get you to do first is just introduce yourself. Who are you? My name is Wanda Johnson. I'm the mother of Oscar Grant, killed January 1st, 2009, at the Fruitvale BART station in Oakland, California. We also sat down with Oscar's uncle. Cephas, affectionate out to the community as Uncle Bobby X. You know, we have we have talked before, Uncle Bobby, and as you know, we sued Bart to try to get these records. And I'll just we wanted to like, play them both, some selections of the hours of audio recordings that we just gotten by suing Bay Area Rapid Transit or Bart Police. So, so these are these are the tapes of the criminal investigation into Oscar Grant's death. Um, and I wanted to ask, so have you heard any of these tapes before? Um, no, actually, this was the first time that I got to listen to them. No one outside of the agency and a handful of lawyers has ever heard these tapes before. It's interesting sitting here and anticipating what I'm going to hear. Bobby says the feeling of anticipation was familiar. Similar to waiting for the jury to come back with the decision on George Floyd. He'd just been at the trial in Minneapolis with Floyd's family. You know, me personally was holding my breath and praying and hoping that there actually turned out to be a conviction. Now he was hoping he might hear something that could lead to another conviction, lead the DA to press charges against an officer who was never held to account for his role in Oscar's death. I'm Suki Lewis, and this is On Our Watch, an investigative podcast from NPR and KQED. While these tapes have been kept confidential by the agency for more than a decade, the shooting of Oscar Grant on a train platform on New Year's 2009 grabbed immediate national and international attention. 22-year-old Grant was fatally shot on New Year's Day after he was pulled off a BART train for allegedly fighting. The incident was caught The video show a police officer shooting... It was really the first time cell phone video of a police killing went viral. Captured by bystanders, the footage shows Oscar Grant lying face down on his stomach on the platform as one police officer pins him down and another reaches for his weapon, points, and shoots. This case made history and helped spark a new civil rights movement. In the final episode of On Our Watch, we take you inside that system, into the interrogation rooms of a homicide investigation that's been secret for more than a decade. Oscar was denied his full justice. 
Oscar Grant's family has long felt that they haven't gotten justice. These tapes might finally explain how and why that is. This message comes from NPR sponsor Custom House, an imprint of HarperCollins. In the new book, How to Survive America, legendary activist and comedian D.L. Hughley does a deep dive into America's chronic illness, racism. In his trademark voice, Hughley unpacks the toll of racism and white supremacy on black communities across the country. How to Survive America is available now wherever books are sold. Whether you're black, white, brown, or Asian, don't leave home without it. Three years ago, a man with a grudge murdered five people at the Capital Gazette newspaper in Maryland. And now, finally, his trial has started. What we wanted to know was, how did the staff who survived the shooting keep going? Find out in our Capital Gazette series from NPR's Embedded podcast. So let me set the scene for you here. Uh, this is Joel Enriquez, who was the detective. And this is tape from him on the platform when he first arrives at the scene. Okay. And then finds out that um, Johannes Meserly has shot somebody. I copy code three for a gunshot wound. Bart detective Joel Enriquez was on patrol in Berkeley around two o'clock in the morning when he heard a call over the radio. There had been a shooting in Oakland at the Fruitvale station. Confirm code three for a gunshot victim. As the on-call detective, he drove over to investigate. When Enriquez gets to the platform, he starts recording this audio. The scene's still very fresh, and he finds out... Apparently there's video. Really? Yeah. Okay, cool. Is Potter saying that? The shooting was caught on camera. There was a witness that just happened to be recording. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. All right. Enriquez calls up the hospital to find out how the person who was shot is doing. Hey, Brando, it's Joel. Hey, dude. Happy New Year. And uh, I know you're at the hospital with the uh, suspect. Can you give me a call when you get a chance? I just want to know his status. I'm uh, the uh, lead investigator. He finds out that Oscar Grant, who he calls the suspect, is still breathing, but critical. The most important was going to be obviously. The shooter was a BART police officer, a 27-year-old who'd been with the department for just over a year and a half, Johannes Meserly. And this means there's a protocol that's got to be followed which Enriquez tells another officer he's not super familiar with. You know what I want to do right now? Is go to my officer-involved shooting portion of the homicide class. I'm going to look through that Pull out the manual go, hold on. Yeah, hold on. Don't do it savagely. That's what he did. He fucking rolled up with a manual, and he was sitting on top of his car looking through it. Okay, do we got to do this? We got to do this? We got to do that? You know, he didn't know anything about calling the DA investigator. He didn't know about none of that shit, man. So if you can kind of hear, they're basically talking about consulting the manual and... Just listening to them, they're not serious, in my opinion, they're not taking it seriously. Yeah. Can I listen to that one more time? Yeah. Yeah, come. The lead detective, Joel Enriquez, did not respond to our messages requesting comment. There were six other officers on the platform when Johannes Meserly shot Oscar Grant, and they're all told to go back to police headquarters at the Lake Merritt BART station to be interviewed. All right, today is January 1st, 2009, approximately 8.48 in the morning. We're at the Lake Merritt BART station. The police reports show the officers are put in separate rooms and offices where they're told to wait. We are interviewing Officer uh, Marisol Dominici, which is badge number... 496. 496. It's actually pronounced Domenici. She's the first officer they talk to. Knowing that it's been several hours and you're probably pretty tired, why don't you just tell me the best that you can about what you remember about what happened at the Fruitvale Bar Station last night. She's been up for hours at this point, and the interview is short. That sound you hear is the BART train going by in the background. There was a call about some fight upstairs on Platform 1 Dublin-bound train. We go upstairs, and uh, Tony uh, was my partner that day. Uh, Domenici says her partner, Officer Anthony Tony Peroni, detained three guys getting off the train. Three males, I stayed with them. And asked her to watch them. Uh, they wouldn't cooperate. I pulled out my taser. I told them to sit down. When they saw the laser, they sat down. 
um, but they were still going off, cursing at us. We're just fucking bar police. We don't do shit. Uh, we shouldn't do this and this and that to them. She says Peroni first pulled Oscar Grant off the train and then went back for another guy who wasn't cooperating. Not cooperative at all. So Peroni tackled him to the platform. Domenici says people on the train started to yell at them. What these people saw was, you know, Tony, you know, taking him down and, um, police brutality that's what they kept saying they kept saying you know fuck you you know fuck the police you know that's fucked up they're just kids and the whole the whole nine yards no nobody backed up and they just kept coming but if it more officers arrived on the scene and Domenici says people started pulling out their cell phones first to film and then the Asian male throws a phone towards me uh when he throws a phone I kind of leaned to the right, thinking it's going to hit me because I had my taser in my left hand. Another officer tackled the guy who threw the phone. Next thing, I hear a pop, uh, sound like a firework. And I turn around, and you can just smell. It's just a distinctive smell. And um, I turn around, and then I didn't know what was going on. And then after, you know, I heard that pop. Everybody on the train, you know, they're like, oh, he got shot. This is fucked up. You know, fuck you, bar police. And they just keep going off on us. And, you know, it, it was kind of scary, scary, but you know, it goes with the job, so. The BART detectives ask Domenici very few questions. The whole interview is 16 minutes. They don't ask why her partner, Peroni, chose those specific guys to pull off the train. And they don't ask if they were involved in the fight. They don't even ask for details about the shooting, like where the other officers or detainees were when it happened. And they don't ask her if anyone had weapons. So this is, uh, this is um, Marisol Dominici. We play Bobby and Wanda, a clip from when Domenici was interviewed again about a week later, after protests had erupted in the city. Instead of us being the good guys and trying to fix the situation... We were no longer the good people there, officer-wise. Um, it's like everybody turned against us uh, because of what went down. And that's when I knew, you know, it's us or them, the crowd. And that's when I became afraid, and, and, and I knew what I had to do if I had to do it. You would hear things like, you know, Were you surprised by anything in the tapes? Um... Just hearing her begin to cry and all that stuff, that kind of surprised me because Oscar, you know, tried to talk to her, you know, wanted to talk to somebody in charge. Someone who could intervene because it was Domenici's partner, Officer Tony Peroni, who first went after Oscar, pulled him off the train, and then later held him down. They could have said something to Peroni to calm him down. Domenici's lawyer talked to us, and she said that Domenici couldn't really see Peroni using force. She was facing away from him on the platform, and that there wasn't enough time for her to intervene and prevent it. That morning after the shooting, BART detectives made a number of choices, according to the police reports. While there were seven officers on the platform when the shooting happened, they only decided to interview three of them. The rest are asked to type up a short statement about what happened in a Word document, rather than enter the information into their regular case management system, which can be seen by other departments. The chief stopped in on Meserly's partner, the police records show, and told him, good job and good night. They're told to go home without doing an interview, except for Tony Peroni, the first officer on the scene, and Johannes Meserly, the shooter. Peroni said he did nothing wrong, Messerly would later say he made a mistake. Neither agreed to talk to us for the story. Is there anything that you want to hear that I can play for you? Do So do we have uh, anything on Messerly's interview? Did he even say anything? Because that's when he quit, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We tell Oscar's uncle Bobby and his wife Beatrice X. Johnson, who's with him listening to the tapes, that there just isn't much. The tape from Messerly's short. He, he, I, I can play you what we've got. Messerly refused to give a statement until he got to see the bystander video of the shooting. So according to the police records, they let him watch it. Okay, I'm rolling. Uh, I'm Detective Joel Enriquez, Batch 456, with the Bar Police Department Criminal Investigation Section. 
Ben Enriquez sits down with Officer Meserly, his two attorneys, and a couple people from the DA's office. The time is 9.25 a.m. I'm here to investigate. At 9.13 a.m., eight minutes before this interview took place, a doctor pronounced Oscar Grant dead, making this now a homicide investigation. I'd like to put it on the record that uh, I have uh, had a working relationship with you in the past and want to make sure that you're okay with me interviewing you. Yes? Okay. During this interview, and in fact, in the hours of tapes that we've gotten from Bart, the only word you ever hear Meserly say on tape is that faint yes. And Officer Meserly is declining to give a statement at this time. Okay. Um, While the department can still order Meserly, their employee, to give a statement, if he does talk now, it's considered a compelled interview. And the DA can't use it because it would violate his Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate himself. And just so it's totally clear for the tape, uh, this is Melissa Crum speaking again from the DA's office. We do not participate in any kind of interviews that are um, compelled. So we are going to depart at this time. Uh, And we've told your attorneys that if at any point you do want to give a statement, um, we're at your leisure. So good luck, everybody. Thank you. Okay, um, 9.28, and Enriquez is going off tape. What the hell does good luck mean? This is a damn murder investigation. What the hell does good luck mean? See, that's so disrespectful to me. That's Beatrice again. What the hell does good good luck mean? That's how they talk, because they all partners and friends. The DA told us that that good luck was intended for the investigators, like good luck getting Meserly to talk. But BART investigators did not compel Meserly to give an interview that morning. After watching the video and after the DA left the room, according to the internal affairs records, Meserly said he was too tired to talk. They let him go home and said he could give that statement at a later time. But that time never came. He called me from his attorney's office and said that, hey, dude, I'm going to resign. I'm not going to give the statement. I said, so Meserly resigned rather than do that interview. I said, well, why? Why are you going to do this? Do you know everything that's going to happen to you? Do you know the charges are going to be filed against you? You know you're going to lose your job. Do you know how it's going to look? And all these things. And he was crying. I I was crying and saying, dude, I don't I don't understand this. This is Officer Terry Foreman talking to investigators. He was close to Meserly, and in the days after the shooting, he counseled him. Here's how he describes those conversations. And the thing said, he says, he says, you know what, Terry he says, no one from my department in, in command staff came up to me that day or has called me since to say, hey, we're behind you. We're, we're here for you. He says, I never heard from the chief. I never heard from anybody. He says, I cannot trust my livelihood and my job and everything I'm going through to this department. He says, I do not think that they will back me. This decision to resign rather than give a statement is also a calculated one, made certainly with the advice of his lawyers. Foreman was called down to the station right after the shooting to sit with Meserly. Describe for us what happened. Uh, I walked in there. First thing I did is give him a hug. Um, I remember he was, uh, he started to cry a little bit and I said, I'm here for you. Meserly wanted to talk to Foreman because they were friends, but also because Foreman had shot someone on duty too. You said he made some comments to you. What comments did he make to you? Uh, he, he, he first, first he said, he said, he said it was, it was different. Um, you know, he just said it was different. It was different. And I didn't know if he was referring to, uh, just how he was feeling, uh, or the situation down there. Um, he said it it, it was going towards his pocket. I thought he had a gun. I thought he had a gun. Foreman says he talked to Meserly every day to make sure he was doing okay. So it's pretty clear that that Johannes thought the guy had a gun? Yes. Uh, Did he go into any detail as to why he thought the man had a gun? He just, you know, when I first walked into the room, he said it was, you know, and I really don't know what he was meaning by it was, it felt different. It it was something, it was different. And I thought he was going for a gun or his pocket or something of that nature. And uh, and then it was, you know, know, and I, I, I shot him. So, uh, you know, and the foreman tape, 
When you heard that tape, what, what did you feel? Uh, that tape was very interesting. And obviously, you know, uh, an officer would not pull out a taser if someone is going for a gun. They will use lethal force. And so he did just what he intended to do. By he, Wanda means Meserly, that he meant to shoot. The DA had this, right? Suki, that's a good question. Did the DA have these tapes? Yes. The Oakland Police Department eventually took over the criminal investigation of Meserly. And on January 11th, just two days after this interview with Officer Terry Foreman, the Alameda County DA charged Johannes Meserly with murder. His family came to see me and his girlfriend and talked to me in my office, and I I ended up agreeing to represent him. This is Michael Raines, who you've heard on the podcast before. He's the attorney whose firm represents about 400 different police unions in California. On January 30th, he filed a motion for bail, and the world got the first hint of what Meserly's defense would be. The shooting was an accident. Meserly meant to use his taser. The explanation that Meserly mistook his gun for his taser, you know, it first appeared in that bail motion that you filed on January 30th. Was that something that you came up with? Did, did Meserly, you know, come up with that on his own? Oh, no, no, no. Look, we're listening to what he has to say. And what he has to say is, and then I went to grab my taser and I thought I was grabbing my taser. He couldn't understand how or why he had drawn his gun and shot Oscar. And and it, it was, as you can imagine, it was both uh, embarrassing, an embarrassing failure and a shameful failure on his part. And that's the way he felt. In retrospect, Whoever advised him not to give a statement, compelled or otherwise, probably realized that he had done it and that keep his mouth shut. And then it gave his lawyers the opportunity to, for the trial, present this defense. That's Nancy O'Malley, who was appointed as Alameda County's top prosecutor shortly before Meserly's sentencing. During the trial, her office made similar arguments in court. But the jury believed Meserly. They thought he had been negligent, though, and he was convicted of involuntary manslaughter and sentenced to two years in prison. A judge sentenced transit officer Johannes Meserly to two years in prison for the New Year's Day shooting of Grant. He spent 11 months in jail. Okay, we'll arrest him so they won't burn down L.A. again. Oh, my God, it's something you don't want to experience. It's to know that it doesn't matter about your injustice. It's a whole system. Mesley only did 11 months because this whole process was designed that way. At trial, Terry Foreman and three other officers testified for the prosecution that in the days after the shooting, Meserly didn't mention anything about the taser or that it was a mistake. But Bobby says that testimony wasn't enough to make the murder charges stick. And it was just overlooked. Foreman doesn't talk in any way that Mesley was remorseful in the fact that he made a mistake. There was no mistake. In 2011, the agency paid $2.8 million to Oscar's mother Wanda and his young daughter to settle a civil lawsuit. But Oscar's family wouldn't find out until many years later. Bart's internal investigation also didn't think Meserly confused his gun for his taser. The internal affairs report was written by this outside law firm called Myers Nave, but it was secret for a decade, until it was unsealed by the transparency law that Bobby was actually instrumental in getting passed, SB 1421. They knew this all the time. If they knew this for the past 11 years, then all the other details of what we don't know that they're hoping has been thrown away or shredded for whatever reason, they will not tell us unless they are forced to. Myers-Nave investigators analyzed the bystander video and platform videos, and they came to a very different conclusion than the jury had. They found that Meserly did mean to use his gun. I asked Michael Raines, Meserly's lawyer, about this. And I'll just quote you from the report. He can be seen trying to draw it at least two times, and on the final occasion can be seen looking back at his hand on the gun holster to watch the gun come out. 
At the time of the shooting, the video clearly depicts Oscar Grant with two hands on his back in a handcuffing position. Deadly force was not justified under the circumstances, end quote. Um, so can you just comment on that analysis? Sure, uh, they were wrong, um, uh, which is not a big deal because lawyers are frequently wrong. Um, and I, I speak on that on good experience. Um, they were wrong about the analysis of the video. Reigns says Myers Nave were going off just the split second on the video where Messerly appears to be looking to the right at his gun. That's probably one one thousandth of a second. He doesn't process, I'm looking at my gun. That's ridiculous. He didn't have the time to think that. He didn't have the time to process it. And Myers Navi, shame on them, should have realized that and should have said, no, he's not consciously looking at his gun and thinking he's going to draw it. The report also reached a conclusion about another officer on the scene, one who'd never faced criminal charges. In the cell phone video of the incident, you can see this officer, a white guy, former military with a buzz cut. He's the first officer to arrive on the platform, Tony Peroni. And the report found he was implicated in Grant's death. And as I further began to read, I saw just, you know, because I always knew Tony Peroni was really the reason. But this was the first time we really seen it in writing, uh, you know, that really made it critical. What became critical for Oscar's family after seeing this in writing in the Myers-Nave report was perhaps another chance at justice. We know Tony Peroni is the reason why Oscar's murdered. And everything he did on that platform justified why he should be charged to be held accountable for the murder of Oscar Grant. Capitalism touches every part of our lives. Capitalism is a giant force that I don't understand. I feel that it's a very safe system. I am constantly in fear of losing my job. It is our biggest success and our biggest failure. On this special series from Throughline, Capitalism. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. And now I will bring up Oscar's mother, Reverend Wanda Johnson Moore. Thank you for being here on today. Oscar was denied his full justice. And I do know... In October 2020, after a long summer of protests against police brutality, Oscar Grant's family holds a press conference. Wanda Johnson stands holding the microphone. She's in the sun outside Fruitvale Station, in front of a giant mural of Oscar that's painted on the wall behind her. Justice delayed is justice denied. They've got a letter of support from Congresswoman Barbara Lee, and they're making a very specific ask about former officer Tony Peroni. It has been 11 years, and still we have not had that trial concerning him. We have Wanda says first the DA said Peroni was going to be a witness for the prosecution, so the office couldn't charge him. Then they were told it was a question of money, something that the current DA, Nancy O'Malley, denies. And then Wanda says they were told nothing. I'm calling for the district attorney to bring charges against him and to charge him for his actions that escalated and caused the loss of my son's life. Then right in the middle of the speeches... Our next speaker is George, and he will be coming up after me something started happening. What I wanted to share right before he comes is that we just actually received a text from Nancy O'Malley concerning the reopening of the case. Phones start lighting up with notifications. During the press conference, there was a tweet or a text that she had made that decision to open it up. So she says... We have listened closely to the request of the family of Oscar Grant. We are reopening our investigation. I have assigned the DA, Nancy O'Malley, the same prosecutor who's been in charge of this case since Meserly's trial, says she'll reopen the case and see if her office should now file charges against Anthony Peroni. If she opens up the case and she charges the officer, it would change the whole system all over this country. 
many other cases can be opened up. Wanda's saying this move by the DA could signal a wider culture shift, that it's never too late for accountability, and that there's a willingness to look back at the past, at incidents like what happened to Oscar. Do you want to play a little bit of the Peroni tapes? This is just the very beginning of Peroni. This is January 1st. All right, so... Okay, recording. All right. I'm Detective Joel Enriquez. I'd like to put it on record that I have a close, personal, and working relationship with you, Tony. Um, And I want to make sure that you're okay with me interviewing you. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Wow. Hearing that is... Wow, it takes me all the way back. That's like uh, me interviewing my sister, having that close personal relationship. And how can you interview someone when you know, especially as he was saying, his close personal relationship, and you can have that person convicted of a crime? Peroni was in the investigation from the beginning. He was right by Meserly on the platform, and he was the first officer on scene. Um, at any point, did you have physical contact with the uh, the suspect? And when I'm talking about the suspect, I'm referring to the guy that got shot. Yes. And from the records, it seems like he's given this elevated role as a trustworthy guide. In his report, Enriquez writes that when he first arrived on the platform, he went to Peroni for details about what happened because he thought he was the most knowledgeable. Peroni told him, quote, I was as close as you could get to without pulling the trigger. We were advised that there was a train on the platform holding uh, with a fight on board in the lead car involving uh, five African males. Peroni calls them African males. He repeats it again. He's looking for five African males. I saw five African males on the platform roughly 100, 100 yards away Uh, engaged in some sort of conversation uh, with another female. He says two of the guys jumped back on the train, which made him suspicious. He tells the other three guys to get up against the wall. There was nobody else on the platform with the exception of the four of us. And there have been two calls about guns that night at other stations. So he thinks... There's a a high probability of somebody who's got a gun. He goes after the two guys who jump back on the train, while Domenici watches the three guys against the wall. First, he gets Oscar Grant. So I went to the train door and uh, <clears throat> gave him verbal instructions to offboard, at which he didn't. Then Michael Greer. I grabbed him by his shirt, offboarded him, and while in that process he was violently trying to escape my grasp. Peroni says Greer turned toward him in a combative stance. I just grabbed him and threw him over my leg and put him on the ground and and put him in handcuffs. The crowd got involved. People were yelling and screaming, uh, hey, let those guys go, police brutality, that type of thing. Peroni tells the investigators he got the train operator to confirm these are the guys. And she just said the five guys that that you have over there were fighting on this car. So Peroni says he tells Meserly that Greer, who's on the ground in handcuffs, is under arrest for resisting arrest, Penal Code 148. And then he points at Oscar Grant. And said he's also under arrest for 148. The two officers go to arrest Grant. Which he violently resisted. Peroni briefly describes getting Oscar on the ground and holding him down with his knee on his back. Peroni says Meserly's yelling as he's trying to handcuff Oscar. I'm going to tase him. I'm going to tase him. And I can't get his arms. He won't give me his arms. Uh, his hands are going for his waistband. Then he, he popped up and said, uh, Tony, Tony, get away. Back up. Back up. And at which time I, I jumped up. And uh, that's when I heard the bang. Um, I never saw the guy's hands. They, all I saw were a couple of elbows, and I was, I was afraid. We weren't getting compliance with him, and I didn't know what, what to do. He was going, uh, his arms were down by his waist. What were you afraid of? Of getting shot. In his first telling, in the interview with fellow BART police, Peroni says Oscar's group are the only ones on the platform 
They probably have a gun. He gets a definitive ID of the suspects involved in the fight, and Michael Greer and Oscar Grant both violently resist him. The only force Peroni ever talks about using on Grant is right at the end, when he's holding him down, trying to handcuff him. But Bart's criminal investigators didn't just have to rely on Peroni's version of events. Along with video... I just want to report an incident that I witnessed along with many, many others. You'll probably be getting more calls soon. They also talked to eyewitnesses, dozens of them. You were coming back from New Year's Eve celebrations? Yes. Between 1.30 o'clock. My friends and I were coming back from San Francisco on New Year's Eve night. We've been to that concert. There were a group of kids on, on the train. Witnesses say it all started because the train was really crowded. It was standing room only. We were like sardines in there. Someone pushed someone's kid, and suddenly it was a fight. It was kind of like a barroom fight, but obviously not in a barroom. I get an intercom call. And the girl's like, there's a fight on the train! And I'm like... The train conductor, Keisha Williams, made the initial call about a fight on the train. And I say, yes, you know, what do they look like? Uh, duh, black male, what are they wearing? Black clothing, do you see any weapons? No. I relay all that to Central. There's a black male wearing all black. She doesn't report a group of five, no mention of a gun. In fact, she clearly states no weapons involved. No weapons involved. Then Officer Peroni shows up. He looked like a military guy. Looked like a Marine to me, like an ex-Marine or something. With the crew cut hair. Muscular build. Stocky and tall. I just remember all of anger. This crazy cop, you know? That's how you describe him? Yep. They say Peroni yells at the two guys on the train. Get off my fucking train. Mother effer, get off the train. The fuck off the train. Oscar complies, and Peroni has him get up against the wall with his friends. Witnesses say Peroni physically dragged Michael Greer, who they describe as a kid with dreadlocks. Yeah, I like the dreadlocks. And he, he seemed like a kid. Off the train. That's the first one the officers grabbed. And they grabbed him and they, like, choked him. So did you ever confirm, did you ever say, those are the guys that were fighting? No, I, I don't know if they were the ones. They the the conductor tells investigators she didn't see the fight. And when Peroni takes Greer to the ground... Yeah, I, I took a film of the thing on my cell phone. People start pulling out their phones. I mean, people were angry. That's not justice. How is that justice? We're taping this. Including Oscar. One of the guys is filming it with his cell phone. Looks like Oscar's filming the crazy cop beating up on this kid here with the dreads. And I say to my friend, I go, I said, man, that kid's crazy because the cop's crazy. Oscar called his girlfriend and told her the cops were beating them up for no reason. She'd later testify he sounded scared. Now, are you you're saying all the officers were being abusive? No, just the one. Anthony Peroni. Now he takes Oscar down. And then the uh, crazy cop has him pinned with his knee to his, his neck, I guess, and his shoulder or whatever. And then Meserly is standing over him. Next thing I know, Officer Meserly comes up to his hip. And I, and I told my friend, I go... Oh, no, he's not going to shoot him, is he? Seven minutes after Tony Peroni arrives on the platform, Oscar Grant is shot. From many of these witnesses, you can hear what emerged, a portrait of an angry officer who charged onto a crowded train on New Year's Eve, who started screaming and swearing at Oscar's group of friends, people the officer never confirmed were even part of the fight, a fight that was really more of a pushing match that involved no weapons and was over before he arrived. Listening to that, sitting with that, what comes up for you? Um, witnesses have said, you know, wow, that guy is really, you know, going crazy. Something's wrong with him. And he's a police officer. They hadn't done anything to give him the indication that they were even possible suspects in so-called, a so-called fight. Peroni was out of control. He was the aggressor. He's just as accountable as Meserly was. And the gaps between what witnesses said happened and what Peroni said happened, those key omissions or distortions, became a focus of the outside law firm Myers Nave. They took over the internal affairs investigation, re-interviewing dozens of witnesses, other officers, and the detainees. Shortly after the trial, they questioned Peroni. 
They questioned Peroni's identification of the five guys he detained on the platform. When you were going up the stairs, was did you see anyone from that train coming or anything coming off the platform down past you? No, there was nobody coming past me. That's another reason. But the Myers-Nave investigators looked at the platform footage and found Peroni actually walked through and past another group of black guys before honing in on Oscar's group when he and Greer jumped back on the train. Why are they getting back on the train? Um, when I asked them to get against the wall, that drew my suspicion way up. In order to have the grounds to detain them for the fight, Peroni still needed an eyewitness, which he said was the conductor. And she says, those five you've got there were the five causing a problem on my train. Okay. And did she gesture or point towards the individuals against the wall? Yes, she did. But the conductor denied ever making this ID, so the report found there was no grounds for the detention. They also questioned his use of force. And you remember going over to Grant? Yes. And do you remember going hands-on with him? No. But in fact, the investigators found Peroni struck Oscar in the face with his knee, pushed him into the wall, and hit him. They questioned his use of the N-word. And do you remember that you said to him, words to the effect of, bitch-ass nigger, or are you calling me a bitch-ass nigger, something like that? Specifically, remember him telling me about his four-year-old daughter and how he respects the police. I said, and then why are you giving us a bad time? And then thinks of, well, then he called, then that's when he says, well, you're a bitch-ass nigger. And I said, you're calling me a bitch-ass nigger? You know, that type of thing? And uh, he said, yeah. And then I said, bitch-ass nigger, huh? And uh, I think that's when Mesley comes over and pushes him down. And that's when the handcuff starts. And finally, they questioned his tactics. Uh, how were you trained to, if you recall, or if you were trained, to use your knees and your weight to hold someone down? I don't recall. Are you ever trained to place your knee on the, a suspect's head in order to hold them down? No. Okay. Um, are you not supposed to put your knee on their head? Uh, I don't know. All right. You had, when you switched sides, you had your knee in his upper back area, shoulder area. Is that right? Yes. And you used also your hands in order to hold his right shoulder down? Yes. So how much uh, were you were you putting your weight on him and leaning forward at that point? Yes. And did you, um, were you still ordering him to take his hands out? I don't remember. Do you know if Officer Meserly was ordering him to take his hands out? Uh, I remember Meserly saying a lot of things, exactly when and what he said. At that time, that's when he started yelling that I can't get his hands. I can't get his hands. They're in his waistband. I can't get his hands. Okay. Did you ever think that your weight on Oscar Grant may have inhibited his ability to get his hands out? I don't know. This outside law firm, Myers Nave, found once Anthony Peroni takes his weight off of Oscar Grant, when Meserly tells him to stand back, there's this moment on the video where Oscar Grant moves his hands to a handcuffing position behind his back. They found it was Peroni who prevented Oscar from giving Meserly his hands. The report found that Peroni was dishonest, that over the course of seven months and during multiple interviews with BART detectives and investigators with the DA's office, his story kept changing. Finally, they determined that Peroni was, quote, in large part responsible for setting the events in motion that created a chaotic and tense situation on the platform, setting the stage, even if inadvertent, for the shooting of Oscar Grant. Bart fired Peroni for these policy violations. He appealed, but he didn't get his job back. In January 2021... My name is Nancy O'Malley, and I am the district attorney of Alameda County. In October... Of DA Nancy O'Malley releases a video statement. I remain keenly aware that the killing of Oscar Grant in 2009 greatly affected the county and the state, and that the impact of his death remains... O'Malley says for murder, they need to be able to prove that Peroni had the intent to kill, 
and he didn't pull the trigger. Although Peroni's conduct was aggressive, utterly unprofessional and disgraceful, it did not rise to the mental state required for murder. But could he have been charged with something less than murder? With a misdemeanor crime of Penal Code Section 149, commonly referred to as assault under color of authority. Penal Code 149 is when police abuse their power as officers to physically assault or beat someone. That's the technical term, assault under color of authority or under color of law. And it's just a misdemeanor. If an officer is found guilty, the most they'd get is a year in jail. We condemn Peroni's conduct, but we cannot charge him with murder or any other crime. O'Malley says now it's too late. The statute of limitations for that misdemeanor has passed. Do you think that the choice to not pursue charges back then uh, kind of let Peroni off the hook? Well, I think he was fired from the police department, um, so he wasn't completely off the hook. O'Malley told me not charging him back then was a strategic decision. Peroni didn't pull the trigger, and they wanted to get the guy who did. We firmly, firmly believe the evidence and the law supported murder charges. And so that decision, that strategic decision was made. And I think it was the right decision. Because frankly, if we had not put Peroni on the stand and the jury came back with the verdict they did, that would be a criticism of us. Why didn't you put the guy who started the whole thing on the stand? Why didn't you make him testify? If she had charged him back then, he could have invoked his Fifth Amendment rights and refused to testify at trial. He ended up being a hostile witness, but the agreement had already been made, she said, and all Peroni could have been charged with was a misdemeanor. I asked O'Malley, well, why reopen it more than a decade later? Well, um, you know, I, I think that my decision to reopen it was out of respect for Oscar Grant and how he died. It was out of respect for his family, whom we had supported. And so my feeling was, is there any harm in looking? And we did. We looked, we looked at videos. We read every report. We, you know, we did everything uh, to see if there was any legal theory that could hold Peroni accountable other than a 149. I felt it as a disrespect because she already knows the laws and statute of limitations for um, a misdemeanor. Here's Wanda Johnson again. She shouldn't have got up and did a political stunt, you know, to make her uh, look good or get a thing on her belt because I'm a concerned district attorney, so I'm going to reopen the case and I'm going to... Don't appease me, you know, and don't appease my family. Nancy O'Malley did try to charge Peroni in 2013. The probable cause declaration alleges he or his wife collected thousands of dollars in unemployment checks while he was working for the U.S. Army after Bart fired him. But O'Malley says Peroni was out of the country, and then the statute of limitations ran out. Tony Peroni is currently serving in the California Army National Guard. He's a Special Forces Communications Sergeant. In response to my inquiry, a spokesman for the National Guard wrote, Peroni is a highly decorated soldier with many awards and has been in the military since 1997. They declined to answer further questions. I bring up with O'Malley some of the cases we've seen that are similar to Peroni's. Other officers who weren't honest. The Rio Vista officers who wrongly arrested the woman calling 911. The Stockton officer who beat up the teenager. Rarely have I seen it turn around where the officer is actually charged for behavior like Peroni's, kind of over-aggressive, um, throwing people around, abusing his authority, kind of under color of law, as you talk about, you know, in your statement. And so how do we disincentivize officers from using that kind of behavior if they are never criminally charged for it? Well, I think you make a good point. I mean, we weren't getting that information either until 1421 passed. I mean, we have to do exactly the same as you do to get the information from police departments. But I think the point that you're making is a good one, that there, there has to be accountability for that type of behavior, even if it's low-level behavior, even if it's misdemeanor behavior. 
But DAs do have access to body cam footage. They have access to incident reports. And even in cases where those directly contradict each other or show improper use of force by officers, they rarely charge them. Even in those cases where the behavior of officers has incredibly serious consequences for the people involved. Is there anything you would want to hear, Wanda, um, in the tapes? Is there anything that you're curious about, or um... yeah, are there, are there are there any tapes that we can play for you that you might that we haven't? Uh, did you guys get uh, Mike's tape? Michael Greer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did he say? Wanda wants to hear from Michael Greer. The guy witnesses described as the kid with dreadlocks, who was part of Oscar's group of friends, who were out together on New Year's, who ended up on a crowded train in a pushing match, and then detained on the Fruitvale platform. Michael Greer, let's find that. Next, we hear from them. The story Oscar's friends tell about that night. Dude tried to throw my head in the ground. That's when my friend Oscar and them tried to stand up is that Oscar was trying to protect Michael Greer when Peroni knocks him down. Oscar was on his knees saying, no, please don't, please don't, I have a daughter. That he was trying to get everyone to be calm. And he's telling them, please don't, please don't, and they grab him, and they, they bring him forward on the ground, and he, like, falls on my leg. Oscar's friends say they can't do anything but shout as Peroni pins Oscar on the ground. He's telling him, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Peroni has his knee and his neck. Oscar, like, <clears throat> he like, I can't breathe. He like, just get off my neck. And he tries to, like, move his neck so he can breathe. And Peroni grabs him by the back of the head and puts his head back down, puts his knee in his neck again. So he's sitting there. This is when they start to cuff him. I don't know what happened. All I heard was a pop. Dude just shot him, like, dead in between his arms. They shot Oscar. After they shot him, they cuffed him. No, why they gonna what's the point of that? Then what happened? And they just left him there for a while, uh, just left him in handcuffs. Two minutes later, according to police records, one of the officers returns with a trauma kit. And we, like, just go talk to him, keep him awake, because he keep, like, trying to go to sleep or something. I'm just sitting there, I was hollering his name, like, don't go to sleep, stay up, stay up. Oscar, don't go to sleep. Finally, an ambulance arrives, and they take Oscar downstairs on a gurney. Oscar's friends describe being handcuffed and loaded into cop cars. Oscar's friend, Nigel Bryson, says he was the last one left on the platform. I was asking her, could you save me? He asks Officer Domenici if she can save him. I was the last one up there by myself. I didn't know what they was going to do to me. They're brought back to the BART police station, and the cells are full. So some of them are left in the hallway in handcuffs, and the internal affairs records say they put Nigel's older brother, Jack, in a cage. They just instantly bring me to the cage. They have a little cage in there. They just instantly put me in there. Here's Jack telling Myers Nave investigators about it. And just sit me down, and I sit there for about maybe six hours, seven hours. With your cuffs still on? Cuffs on the whole time. Was the, was the cage locked? Yes. Why would you put a guy... In the cage with handcuffs, like, where would he go? You know, I had handcuffs on me the whole time I was there. I'm real tired. I'm, like, blanking now. I'm, like, like sleepy, drowsy, dizzy, confused, scared. So um, they're asking me questions, like, what happened? I tell them, I don't know. When they finally get interviewed by BART police that morning, they're told they're not under arrest. You are not under arrest. You understand that? That they're witnesses but they're also read their Miranda rights. Don't leave anything out. Don't think, oh, I'm going to leave this out because, you know, it's going to make my cousin, like, be in a bad light or whatever. Then BART detectives ask Jack Bryson what he saw, if he saw a gun in Meserly's hand. Did you see what he had in his hand? No. You didn't? Okay. What? Obviously, with no taser. Taser don't just go through you like that. Taser don't leave an exit wound. Now you're bleeding out your mouth. Yeah, your cousin, he was shot. They called themselves cousins. So you want to figure out what happened? Y'all don't know what happened. Because who shot him? Y'all know exactly who shot him. If it was the opposite way, it, it wouldn't be no questions and all that. It'd be in jail. Oh, no, we're just, we're, so I'm, I don't understand what the problem is we're, with him. We're 
Yeah, 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 I know. I understand that. But if I was to shoot somebody and bark in their chest for no, while they already down, I'd be in jail right now when nobody's sitting here be talking to me. The cop just did the same thing. So why is it different? Because he cop. Do the same thing. Mr. In April 2010, this is months after Meserly's sentencing, BART Detective Joel Enriquez, the close personal friend of Tony Peroni, sent a recommendation to the DA's office that the detainees, Michael Greer and Oscar's other friends, be charged with resisting arrest. The DA's office said they didn't see any evidence of resisting arrest, so they didn't pursue charges. The five detainees sued BART for their treatment. The agency eventually settled with them in 2014 for $175,000. Ed Alvarez is my name, and I am the current chief of police at the BART Police Department. Ed Alvarez served his entire 23-year career with the BART Police Department. He was on the platform after Grant was killed. He was the officer responsible for securing the scene, and now he's the chief. What happened, it was a very unfortunate, very tragic. Oscar Grant lost his life, uh, and, and we're sorry for that. Do you see any issue or like potential conflict of interest of having someone who's a close personal friend kind of doing the initial criminal interviews? No, I think, again, as long as you stay within the parameters of your job and being an investigator and asking the questions that any other investigator would ask, uh, I think is appropriate. Uh, Friendships are going to always be there. So you just have to deal with it uh, on the professional level and understand that uh, that is your job. Because, you know, listening to it was interesting to listen to kind of the comparison between those interviews that were done by BART detectives of other BART officers and then the interviews that were done by Myers Nave, the outside law firm, obviously, that BART hired to do the internal investigation. And it did seem that Myers Nave was asking a little bit more tough questions and kind of... Yeah, I, I think um, they look at Myers Nave and uh, people who came in after the fact uh, had time to, I think, process a lot more information and they look at things through different lenses. When I asked him what he thought about Meserly, he had a very different take than the Myers-Nave finding. He said he believed that Meserly confused his gun and his taser. At the same time, he pointed to the report as the impetus for a lot of the reforms his agency has undertaken, from body cameras to better taser training to civilian oversight. But one thing that hasn't changed is who does internal affairs investigations. Bringing in an outside investigator was a one-off. Usually, it's someone in the department. And one of the key recommendations of the Myers-Nave report was this, quote, The greater the degree of transparency by BART PD, the better the agency will become. Even with the passage of SB 1421, it took more than two years and a lawsuit filed by KQED for them to comply with the law. Alvarez wouldn't comment on the lawsuit. He also didn't want to comment on more specific questions about what happened with the detainees and investigative steps taken and not taken by detectives. Alvarez did say behavior like Tony Peroni's Tony, do you have any questions for us? remains against the policies of his department. No, not at this time. Okay, um, I'm going to go stop the tape at 10.44 a.m. It's really painful. It's yeah. sad. Mm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to thank you for listening to this. Mm-hmm. Even with the report of breaking the door down, getting 1421 passed, getting the Myers-Nave report, now and even eventually getting these tapes, um, that really makes it pretty obvious that this, the internal affairs of BART could not really investigate. Here we are uh, just realizing just how sad and sick the system is broken. It hit me harder than I expected. I mean, it's, 
It's painful. Um, everything that we knew is actually coming to light today through just listening to these conversations. Bobby fought for this law and helped get it passed, and he's still fighting. He just testified in front of state lawmakers on a bill that would open up more records, expand and strengthen SB 1421. Our work hasn't been in vain, but it's still painful to know that we missed our day because it's history. For Wanda, SB 1421 revealed something much more personal that she'd never known about her son's death. To hear that uh, supposedly he was talking uh, when he was at the hospital, saying that he couldn't breathe and stuff. Oscar Grant was awake when they brought him to the hospital. You know, just reading about how the officers and stuff was even in the room, you know, during that time, and different ones taking all these pictures. Um, you know, pictures that I've never seen, pictures that my family never seen, and even knowing that um, he was even talking at the hospital. I don't even have the words to describe it, you know? Was there anything that you hoped for from the tapes that you were kind of hoping was in there? You know, um, I was hoping that, you know, at least one of them would tell the truth and just say, you know what? It was our mistake. He should have never died. From the very beginning, uh, they tried to come up with some kind of um, story to make it seem like Oscar deserved to be shot and killed, when in fact they deserved to be in jail for what they did to Oscar. Oscar's family says their push for transparency is about more than individual outcomes. Because having the truth matters. Having the facts matters. Maybe not for me or my family, but what it can do is if people hear the tapes, change the perception of how they may have felt concerning policing. And then I think the thing that I wanted to ask you about again, because it can get lost in all of these records and in all of these details, is just a little bit about your son. <laughs> He really loved my mom. He really, she spoiled him rotten. He would do whatever my mom wanted him to do. You know, he had asthma, and so he was out cutting the grass one day, and he was just a sneezing and a coughing, but because his granny asked him to do it, he didn't mind doing it. Uh, he was a young man who, you know, not without flaws, had some, but yet if he saw you had a need, he would do whatever he could to try to help you, too, with whatever you needed. And he had these plans for a future with his fiance and his daughter to start up a barber shop. Just getting away and him and Sophina and Tatiana, you know, starting their life together. Wanda says more than anything, Oscar adored his daughter. He would comb her hair. You know, he would sing with her. You know, one of the videos cracked me up, uh, her birthday video. And she's singing so loud, happy birthday, and he's singing with her. And it's just, you know... How he loved his daughter. People still know his name. You know, people still know the story. I meet so many people. Oh my God, you're Oscar's mom. Can I give you a hug? After she leaves the rallies and Senate hearings. Then I go home and I say, oh, Oscar... You know, and I'll say a couple of things to him. And I know he can't hear, but I'll just say, you know, something to him. And I'll say, well, just come hug me, you know, and I know he can't. But, you know, I, I come home and I grieve it privately.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.